Hello and welcome to the Seeking Health Podcast. I am Josiah Meyer. I was a missionary for seven years until I stepped back with my wife in 2019 to seek health and re-examine my beliefs. Right now I'm a Christian, but not an evangelical. And my wife is, describes herself as an agnostic and very much not an evangelical. And we're deconstructing and reconstructing our faith together, trying to figure out what is healthy, what we can keep, and what we don't really want to keep about our upbringing and this whole you know, evangelical package that we've been, been raised with. Um, and so I have a really special guest here today. I'm excited to have Daryl Shantz, Dr. Daryl Shantz. Um, I honestly don't think of you as a doctor. I, I think of you as the really cool babysitter that came over and used to wrestle with us. Um, and you were just kind of in that age bracket that was a little bit older than us and super cool, really nice guy. Um, and then you went off and did your thing and I went off and did my thing and, um, you turned into a, a pediatric cardiologist, which is also very cool. Uh, and then at a certain point, uh, you left evangelicalism and you left, we were both raised in a Mennonite church. Uh, your parents were quite involved. As I remember, you were quite involved as you remember, as I remember. Um, but at a certain point you left that and you joined orthodoxy. So you're my, you're my token orthodox friend. You're the one. <laughs> Sometimes I, if, if I want to say that I'm diverse in my friends, I can say, Oh yeah, I, I know like orthodox and Catholics and all sorts of people. And like, you're my orthodox and I have one Catholic <laughs> friend. So, <laughs> but on a serious note, we've had great discussions and we're from similar backgrounds. And at this point in my journey, I'm just kind of like, like a lot of things have to go, especially like if there was any doubt in my mind, this past year has really shown me like there's some serious problems with what's going on in, in evangelicalism. And uh, I'm seriously considering if orthodoxy might be a viable alternative to myself or perhaps listeners of this podcast. Uh, and we've had conversations off, off the air, of course. Uh, but there's something fun about a podcast that just kind of forces us to talk kind of specifically and in a focused way. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what, uh, which direction this will go. Um, I'm going to start it off with a simple, specific question for you. Uh, what stopped working for you about evangelicalism and, and the type of Christianity that you were raised with? Oh, that's a good, uh, good question. Um, you know, I, I never, I guess I never really thought that I reached a point where it stopped working, but it probably did. I mean, I think that um, I had a growing discontent um, that started, um, you know, I, because of my work, we we went through three or four or five different churches over the years. And so I got to see a lot of, of Christianity. I mean, albeit a small sort of segment of, of evangelical Christianity, but I got to see the charismatic expression and, and coming from a conservative Mennonite background, you know, I got to see that as well. And, so I, I think that automatically changes your perspective. Um, and I think over time I began to feel like uh, the Christianity that I had, that I was a part of um, was not really able, was not really able to call me to holiness in a way that I, I was hoping it would. So it, it, it was able to tell me how to get saved and, and how to get other people saved. Um, 
but there wasn't a great sort of um, formula to take me from there to what I knew I, I needed, you know. All of us in our own lives, we, we know the mess that we have and, and, and we want solutions for that, right? And I wanted a faith that, that um, that's good for my life here and now, not just good for, for getting me into heaven, but that, that I can, that will transform my family and my relationships with my wife, with my kids, and, and so I felt like that was lacking. Um, in retrospect, I'm sorry, I'm just going to stream of thought for a while here. So um, sure. forgive me if I go on and on. Um, the, um, I, I think in retrospect, evangelical Christianity sort of has two streams. And there's, there's this one group that's really concerned about how you get saved, how to get you in. Uh, and then there are people who are more concerned with a sort of spiritual formation um, but I didn't often find that to be very healthy. Um, it was a bit untethered at times. I mean, I feel like uh, the charismatics were one group who, who do well at that. They have a vision of the fact that our, our, our life needs to be, um, our life needs to be transformed by, by what we believe. Um, and, and I respect them for that. And in a way I consider myself still, uh, you know, positively influenced by charismaticism. And I think there's a lot of positivity there, but um, I feel like the way it's expressed or lived out in the charismatic church um, has some, some evident problems. And, and so that was difficult for me. And it was during this time then that I became aware of the Orthodox church and, and uh, you know, started looking into it at first uh, on the recommendation. Can I ask you, a, before you sure. go into that, can I ask you, what does holiness mean to you? Because, um, you know, for some people, holiness means being set apart and and not being part of the world i'm actually kind of surprised that you said that you didn't find the mennonites holiness enough for you because i would tend to think that they would be extremely holy right as far as being separated from the world but also more focused on character formation that is kind of an emphasis of a lot of mennonites as opposed to for for example the reformed group that is very focused on ideas and high theology but they're not yeah. real strong on family values necessarily or on character formation. They don't really know what to do with that. So I have found, uh, you know, for character formation, the Mennonites at least are better than the, than the reformed. But so the question was, what, what does holiness mean to you when you say that you weren't getting that um, in, in what you were raised with? Hmm. Well, that's, that's a good observation because you're right. I mean, I think in the Mennonite, faith there is really this this desire to uh read the scripture to interact with it and and to take something away and change your life with it and i i do appreciate that about my upbringing um i think over time i guess i just came to realize that um for one thing very early on as a child the the kind of um the examples of that were all sort of a very a very conservative christianity that was well-intentioned but a lot of the the interpretations of scripture, a lot of the things they took away from it, a lot of the practical application, um, it just didn't work for me. And and then moving away from that church and seeing other Mennonite churches, um, I think the Mennonite church has sort of um, has struggled a little bit to to um, maintain um, a, a vision of what holiness looks like. And so you have these vast extremes, you know, you still have the very conservative Mennonites on the one hand, and then you have on the other hand, some um, groups of Mennonites who, who are 
um, they, the, their definition of holiness seems to be that you're committed to, to a gospel of peace, which I, I don't, I think that's important. I think peace is, is a part of the gospel, but I think somehow that's gotten lot or gotten sort of, um, it's overtaken everything else to the point where that's the only gospel. And I didn't see expressions of, of Mennonite faith where, um, where there was what looked like a good balance. So what does it mean to me? I, again, I mean, it has a lot to do with how I relate to my family, um, to, um, to the holiness that Jesus sets out in the Gospels. I, I've heard you refer a lot to the Sermon on the Mount. And um, I mean, if we really believe that this stuff is, is important for us, um, that it's life-changing, this should be our focus. This should be sort of like the, 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 uh, the rules we live by. Um, so something that incorporated that, I guess, I'd say. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I just want to clarify for some people that aren't as familiar, when you say that some Mennonites are very focused on uh, peace theology, that's referring to pacifism. And some Mennonites kind of put that at the center and say, okay, we're pacifists. We don't fight in war. We have nonviolent responses to things. And that kind of becomes the defining issue that becomes the all consuming. That's all that, not all that they're about, but kind of the main thing that mm -hmm. it means to be a Christian. Um, So can you, as you were starting to feel like things weren't working as far as how, how you were raised, and you mentioned you traveled to a few different churches um, for, uh, for work, how did you try and fix some of the tensions that you were feeling in evangelicalism? Yeah. Um. Hmm, good. Like, I'm not sure. I think a, a lot of what I was doing was just observing. Um, partly, you know, because of our the fact that we moved a fair bit over all those years, I was never really given an opportunity to be in leadership per se. And so, in a way, I'm very grateful for that because it, it, it kept me having to observe, to watch what people were doing. Um, and and to um, it kept me from sort of... Um, committing to um, being a fix for, for these things and just, just watching and observing how things played out as people tried to, to fix these things. Um, I mean, I think more and more I became aware that there were vast differences across different denominations in terms of what was important. Um, and and that, became, that became somewhat problematic for, for me. And one of the fixes that, um, one of the ways that, you know, I think all of us try to deal with that is to, to think about what are the core concepts of things that make us unified, the things that, that glue us together as Christians, um, and, and what it is that, that we need to hold on to. And, and so it was really sort of important for me to, to think about what those things were and to try and hang on to those things. Um, I don't know, does that answer your question? Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is, uh, I'd like to stay here for a little bit, just curious about what are some of the, the problems that you saw and like, kind of how did you try and fix it or or what was the process of that? Because um, it sounds like there was a kind of a transition time of being unhappy 
with evangelicalism or searching a little bit before you went into orthodoxy? Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess, like, over the years, I... I uh, Um, sort of core values were that we had as Christians, um, that, but it, it, it definitely began to be a bit troublesome to me that it was harder and harder for me to put a finger on what they were. And, and I mean, growing up in the same background as me, you know, that one of the, one of those areas where you kind of think you have stability is, is on the area of, um, human sexuality. And, and you think, okay, we all agree, this is the way it should be approached, uh, this is, this is, you know, this is the answer for that problem and, and we're never going to think differently about it. And of course, um, as the years went by, I began to see that ground start to shift and, and it was harder and harder to sort of find, um, find a, a sort of unity on that. Um, and if you push hard enough in a lot of circles, you can find, um, you can find uncertainty on, on you know who Christ is and and is the resurrection real and and at some point like I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask questions we absolutely should we should be able to ask questions but we also need need certainty about don't call yourself a Christian um, does that make sense Yeah, you actually froze for a little bit there, but I think what you're saying is that you were having there was so much diversity among Christians that it was like, there's how can we keep calling all of us Christians if we don't agree on anything? Is that yeah, yeah. what you were saying? Yeah, that's right. And, and I, I guess at some level, I'm not sure I ever really tried to fix it. I, 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 I certainly over the years had to broaden my definition of what, what a Christian was. Mm-hmm. And that was probably for the better. I had to come to understand that it wasn't just the way that I saw scripture. Um, but at some point that did become really problematic as well. And um, one example of that, or one thing that really drove that home was that we started to have a, a Bible study group in our home. Um, we had a bunch of people who, a number of people around us who were Christians. Most of them weren't going to church at the time. And, and we're running this Bible study and we start to talk about, um, you know, different topics in scripture and, um, I think up to that point, I had always considered that if you didn't think like I did, it was because you didn't try hard enough or you weren't reading the scripture for all it was worth. Um, But I began to see that we had these divergent beliefs on things that were actually quite, um, quite important. And at the end of the day, we couldn't really come to agreement on them. And, And it wasn't because the other people weren't trying hard. Some of these people knew scripture better than I did. Um, and and they could argue it very well but we began to talk about things like can a christian sin is it possible for a christian to sin and 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 one group of people believe that it's not possible that a christian no longer sins well um this is this is hugely different from the way i understand scripture um and it 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 really sort of threw me for a loop um how can we be reading the same book and coming to these very different um sort of ideas of 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 the very basics of, of Christianity, like, is it possible for me to sin or not? I think that, that it matters what you think about that. Um, so that was certainly, um, that was formative in my, my sort of um, 
I guess my, my feeling of instability as an evangelical Christian, my feeling that we can't just say it's, if, if we read the Bible, we can figure it all out for ourselves, but that we probably need some other way to help us interpret it. We need some structure, some, some uh, way to, to decide what the message of scripture is. Mm-hmm. Before we move on to orthodoxy, were there other things that stood out to you um, during this time as, as problematic or motivating you to want to change? Well, I mean, I've heard you talk about, um, you know, some of the social issues and, and those are very, um, they, they are definitely areas of, of, um, of dissension um, and were problematic. Um, in addition to that, I guess I, I felt like there was a, a lot of evangelical Christianity had moved toward this sort of um, this idea of faith as something to be marketed, as something to be sold, as something to be um, you, you know um, given out in the same way that the world tries to market something, and that was um, also very problematic to me. Um, evangelism was based on numbers. Um, it, it was based on how many people you could get through the door. Um, and, and again, this comes back to the whole question of, um, of spiritual maturity. It's great to get people through the doors, but how do you move them from that place of, of being curious about God or, 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 you know, having some vague knowledge of God to spiritual maturity. And, and to me, again, that was, that was something that I really, I didn't feel like I, I had for myself. I knew there were areas in my life where, where maturity was lacking. And if we can't do that for someone who's been in the church all of their life, um, how do we move an infant uh, in, into spiritual maturity? Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of coming back around to where I started, but that definitely was a big issue for me. Yeah. I can definitely resonate with a lot of those things. It does feel as though it's, sometimes feels like a marketing and yeah, numbers game, but where is like, where's the growth? Where's the fruit? And if there is growth and fruit, it usually is your ability to shine in a church building, play guitar, speak up front. And what happens when you go home is not really a great concern. As long as you keep your sexuality in the right in the yeah. right lanes that, I mean, that's a big deal. Everything else doesn't really, and don't drink alcohol. And, you know, there's a few hot button issues, but other than that, kind of the, the fruits of the, of the spirit, as much as we preach about them, if somebody doesn't exhibit them, it doesn't seem to matter. And sometimes it seems like leaders that don't exhibit them sometimes actually get pushed to the front, um, which is, mm-hmm. can be yeah, that's a good to see. And that was definitely something I, I experienced as well. Um, I, I, um, I agree. I think, um, you know, it's great to have people involved in the worship team, but um, they need to be able to come to the church because um, not because they have that job to do, um, not as like a hook to keep them there, but because, because they want to be there, whether they ever get to play guitar or drums uh, and that was even a factor for me. I, I think, you know, I, I've always been involved in the worship team. I enjoyed it. It was, it was a big part of our family's life. Um, but I had to be able to ask myself, you know, um, what if I can't do those things I want? Is this still my community? Is this still the group of people that, um, that, that I consider fellow believers and we're growing together? 
Um, and I couldn't always say yes to that for sure. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it almost feels like there's a social club over here and then there's my faith over here and they're not always the same thing. It's like, and maybe that's especially as a musician, maybe this is a musician problem that, cause I love music. I, we both play bass. You, you were kind of part of my inspiration way back when, but I love that. And it's a, it's a music, it's beautiful. And where else do you get to have that? You know, amateurs, guitar, bass, everybody, it's fun, you know? Um, and, and you but, feel like it's something really valuable because you're, you're doing worship music, which I don't mean to take away from that. There is something valuable to it, but you're right. Um, we kind of spiritualize a, a, what is what is a social activity and, and it automatically justifies it or, or gives it value that I'm not sure it should have. Yeah. I mean, a typical church service, I would go have a lot of fun playing music. In the first five minutes of the sermon, I know what he's going to say, and I kind of zone out because I've heard it a million times. And then there's a prayer time. The kids are loud. I'm not real focused, and we leave. And it, there's something about it that I enjoy that feeds me, but um, it, sometimes it does feel a little bit like a social club and not so much like a way to connect with God. Um, sure. So I know you're you're excited or you're ready to talk about orthodoxy. That's what this interview is about. Um, can you tell me kind of what attracted you to orthodoxy? Uh, and, and how did, how did that happen that you went over there? Well, I uh, probably knew less about orthodoxy than you did as all this was going on. Um, most certainly, because I really knew about orthodoxy, um, nothing other than sort of a vague idea, um, that it was some form of Catholicism, I guess, in my mind, it would have been. Yeah. Um, and, you know, someone challenged me on it in, in uh, one of the things that we all used to like to do. And I think you, you probably are familiar with this as well. You sit around and you talk about church and different ideas about how to do church. And in, in, in some circles, that's, that's, uh, um, it's a pretty, you know, sort of typical activity for guys to sit around. And, and I was talking with one of my friends about, um, about church and um, exploring different ideas about how to do it. And we were talking about home groups and, and home churches and that sort of thing. And I think in my mind, that was where probably the real church experience was at that point, because I was just beginning to get frustrated with, with what was happening in this institutional church. And my friend um, started talking about, uh, about the Orthodox church and, and, you know, it really turned me off at first. And I, I thought, man, this guy is, you know, he's going to get into trouble. This is, <laughs> can't go anywhere good. And so my response was to go and, uh, and start listening to some podcasts to figure out, you know, what's wrong with the Orthodox Church and, and how, can I, how can I bring a corrective to this person. And, and uh, so I did that. I started listening to podcasts. And I found out that, A, first of all, I knew nothing about the Orthodox Church. And, and B, um, the Orthodox Church had a lot of theology that, um, you know, I didn't like the way we talked about salvation. Here they were talking about salvation in a way that I was kind of coming to, uh, and it had been there all the time, or or they would talk about this or that. I mean, time after time, I would find, oh, my beliefs really feel at home here. Um, I, I found a place where where um, it, it all fits with what I've been kind of coming to over the last few years in my thinking. Um, 
of course, there was a lot that at that point I, I wouldn't have been able to wrap my head around. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to be an Orthodox Christian because I have a problem with this or that or the other thing. But then as I began to listen to, you know, what their explanations were for those things, um, like um, how they talked about Mary or, or icons or, or the priests, um, I found that a lot of my ideas or, or a lot of the things in my head uh, the answers I expected them to give me were not the answers they had. And, and the answers they had were, in fact, quite satisfying. Um, I had a straw man set up in my head, you know, yeah. and that straw man just slowly sort of um, got blown away, I guess you would say. <laughs> so that took some time. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I just wanted to mention that that's interesting how you phrase that your, your friend proposed orthodoxy and then you said, oh, you're going to get into trouble if you think this, and then you went to look for how to de destroy orthodoxy, intellectually speaking. It's just on my mind because I just recorded a podcast with my wife called I Brainwashed Myself about how we thought control within evangelicalism and how we do create these us and thems and okay. how we police ourselves and police our communities. And if somebody starts to say something that is outside the lines, we are programmed to go and fix that person. And so it's just yeah. interesting to hear that, um, that that's exactly the sorts of things that, <laughs> that we kind of do. Um, and, you know, it might be helpful just to give a really brief history of orthodoxy, super brief, um, because a lot of evangelicals, honestly, we don't know history. Evangelicals do not know history. Uh, beyond like American history. Um, you might, I'm sure that you guys know that Christianity started with Jesus uh, at around, he died around 30 AD. He didn't die at zero. Uh, and then uh, for the first 300 years, it was under the Greco-Roman, uh, mostly grew in the West in the empire of, of Greece and Rome. Uh, and the Greco-Roman world was, there was the people that spoke Greek were in the East, people that spoke Latin were in the West. They were united, but it was a fragile unity, politically speaking. Constantine was able to unite the two sides and Constantine made Christianity legal in 313 AD with the Edict of Milan. About a hundred years later, it became the state religion of the church. Uh, Rome fell in, I think it was around 500 uh, AD, a um, bunch of like all the borders kind of collapsed. It kind of fell in on itself. It got too big. It couldn't support itself as an empire anymore. Uh, and then we had the dark ages uh, and it had nothing to do with the church. It was just that it collapsed. Everything collapsed. Um, and about 500 years after that collapse, there was a theological schism between the Greek in the East and the Latin in the West over some hot-headed people, but also over one line that got added to the Nicene Creed. Um, in the East, uh, they did not add anything. And in the West, they added one line. And uh, they, they had this fight, and they decided that they weren't part of the same church anymore. Um, shortly thereafter, the West had the Crusades that uh, significantly changed the DNA of the Western church. Um, and then after that, there was the Inquisitions. The West got very militarized in a way that the East never did. Another thing that I forgot to mention is that Augustine wrote in Latin. And so he was a presence in the West. 
and in the East, uh, they didn't have Augustine. They didn't have a few other key writers like Tertullian um, and others that are lesser known, uh, Cyprian and others. Uh, the West has a very analytical, um, like Augustine was a lawyer, uh, Calvin was a lawyer, Luther was a lawyer. Those were Augustinian monks. There's a very lawyer-esque um, mentality in the West, in the Catholicism. And in the East, uh, they're more, you all are more influenced by people like Origen, uh, way back in church history, and others, uh, the uh, Cappadocian fathers, uh, Gregory of Nicaea, I believe, um, that emphasize more of the Holy Spirit and less of kind of getting all the words right and getting all the rules right, getting, you know, not that those things aren't important, but it's not where the primary emphasis is typically in broad strokes in the East. Um, from there on, the East tended to be um, under, like Islam, the pressure of Islam was far more on the East than it was on the West. Uh, you have a lot of, of populations within Eastern Orthodoxy that were always being oppressed, that were under, under pressure. Whereas in the West, things were going quite well and the Western church had a lot of power, had a lot of authority until uh, in the 1500s when Martin Luther started the Reformation and then they had their problems within the church. And that is when um, at, the, at the Council of Trent uh, in the West, they figured that part of the problem was that they had far too much diversity within the church. We need to figure out exactly what we believe. They hammered it all out. And from that point on, the Catholic church knew exactly what they believed. Uh, the Calvinists knew and the Lutherans knew exactly what they believed. And then they fought a hundred years of wars, um, which decimated Europe. Uh, we don't often mention that, but in the West, uh, after the Reformation, there was almost a hundred years of very bloody civil warfare between the various um, types of, of Western Christianity until they saw, signed um, the Peace of Westphalia and started the direction towards secularization because they said, we can't be a church and state. We need to have this separation between church and state. And of course, that was officially part of the American constitution as well. So the West and the East have kind of traveled different paths. And evangelicals, when they look at orthodoxy, they might tend to think, oh, that's basically Catholicism. But nothing could be further from the truth. It might look a little bit similar to Catholicism because there is this, you know, the, the robes and, and um, incense and things like that. If you have, if you have more of a traditional, I, I'm not sure if there's a diversity, do you have like kind of less and, and more or anyways, I'll let you talk in a second. Um, if you just look at an Orthodox service and a Catholic service, they might look similar, but historically uh, it's been almost a thousand years of, separation mm -hmm. and sometimes very well sometimes armed sometimes there were wars between them uh and theologically they've they grew apart and then they officially had a division at uh, i think it was 1095 ad or something like that uh it's called the great schism um so yeah that's just kind of your basic crash course on on the history of orthodoxy is there anything you want to add to that um so I think the one, and you kind of alluded to this, but um, in the Great Schism, besides um, the idea of what the Roman Church added to the creed about yeah. the Holy Spirit, 
um, that was um, also probably born out of um, this this whole development of how Rome saw their leader, the Pope. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as opposed to Orthodox leaders. Okay. So, so yeah, Orthodoxy really rejects the papacy um, okay. and rejected the papacy. Um, Rome has always, as I understand it, in the historical church, um, had a, a place of primacy, a place of um, of importance, uh, and the church has always recognized that. But what I, I think one of the big sort of um, disagreements that to this day keeps us apart is the idea that uh, in Rome the Pope developed as as the person who who um, was sort of a, um, a supreme power or authority over the rest of the churches um, that he could um, that he could um, sort of formulate a new truth, um, a doctrine uh, on his own, and that the rest of the okay. church had to sort of come to believe that. Yeah. Um, and that's how the filioque or the, the, the clause in the creed sort of came to be because the, mm -hmm. the Roman church, um, you know, inserted this and then started to uh, imply that the rest of the church needed to, to insert it as well. Now, that um, was problematic in and of itself because the way the Orthodox Church understood the creed was that the creed was written in the 300s, you know, um, through the, the church councils. And one of the things that we came to believe about the creed was that you don't alter it. You don't come along and say, well, we're, we're going to change this today because we don't feel like that's true anymore. These truths, I mean, in a way, we'd say the creed is like it's a summary of what a Christian has to believe. So you, you, you take scripture, there's a lot of things that we argue over, but if you want to call yourself Christian, here it is. It's in the creed, um, in the Nicene creed. And, and this is what we agree on. And you can have a lot of arguments about other things uh, from scripture. You can be unsure about this or that or the other thing, but you must, you must agree um, that the creed is, is, um, is the gospel in a way. Um, and, and still, that's the way we think about it. Um, and so I would say those two issues were the issues that the church split over, um, the creed, the, the insertion to the creed and the position of the Pope. And so, yeah, as we go forward, then, um, you know, our churches did sort of go ahead. Yeah, no, I appreciate that so much. Uh, it's ridiculous how little I know about orthodoxy. Like I know kind of broad strokes, kind of that's okay. Sure. But what I said is literally all that my history teacher told me like and even okay. that i had to learn a lot on my own as far sure. as tendencies because it's crazy how western focused even a, a fairly decent history class in seminary was i think a lot of evangelicals would just get even less than that it would probably start with the reformation almost um, and it's really interesting because i actually know quite a bit about the filioque because my teacher dave goretzky in seminary uh, he wrote his doctoral thesis on, on the filioque, uh, but he cool. didn't mention that the Eastern church, but it makes so much sense the way you said it, that they saw it as an authority issue, not as a doctrinal mm -hmm. issue per se. Uh, I just want to mention that just to make that clear what, what this is talking about. Um, I mentioned Constantine in 313 made uh, the church legal. Uh, shortly thereafter, he felt the need to, hammer out exactly what it is you christians believe um and uh and so he called together a council called the council of nicaea and 
encouraged all the bishops to write down exactly what they believed and they deliberated and they rejected Arianism and they said that we believe that Jesus is fully God, fully man. Now it's more complicated than that. There was a second uh, creed a few, about a decade later. Um, there's all sorts of discussions we could have about that. But the point is at that point, um, Christians that, that existed before Constantine, it wasn't Constantine writing this. He didn't care. He didn't have a dog in the race. He just said, you guys got to agree. And yep. so all these Christians that had had, you know, they've been persecuted. These, this was the pure church that came out of a terrible persecution. The DCM persecution was the worst persecution right at the end. And they came together and said, this is what we believe. Now, sometime in the dark ages, uh, well, the, the middle ages, we, we're not supposed to say dark ages. It's very ahistorical, but yeah. some, somewhere, it, but it was kind of dark, especially after the fall of Rome from 500 up till uh, the Carolinian Re Renaissance. I forget when that is the 700s, I think, it was quite dark. It, it did fall apart. And somewhere in there, there was a controversy about whether Jesus was really, really God or if there was a different way. And to reinforce the divinity of Jesus as the Son of yes. God in the West, because of a controversy, they said, well, the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and from the Son. And they put that into the creed. And it was just kind of this way to, like, they didn't have a council. They didn't, it, it just somehow it fit and it just happened, but then it kind of became habit. And it was a little bit of like a dark time. It was like things were not organized in the West during this time. Things were actually far more organized in the East during this time. And uh, anyways, but then when contact was kind of reestablished, people kind of society got back on its feet at around 500 years after the fall of Rome, they realized they didn't have the same creed anymore. And this is the thing that they said, like over and over, like liturgically, daily, um, sometimes hourly in the East and the West, you'd be repeating this creed as part of your worship and hey, our creeds don't match up. And so that's what the explosion point was. But uh, you know what, <laughs> I do want to mention that even in the West, it was an open discussion for a very long time about whether the Pope, whether the, the Bishop of Rome should be the leader of all the church and even up till i forget exactly when up till very recently there was a debate between what was known as the ultramontane uh this is a french controversy so it was beyond the mountains um that was one party that believed that the pope beyond the mountains ultramontane should rule or whether the conciliary group that the people that thought that the church should be run by a council of all the bishops, perhaps with, with the, the Pope presiding over all of them. But this was a live discussion for quite a long time. And this idea that uh, the Pope could speak ex cathedra and that became truth. Um, th this is a very, even within Catholicism, it's not as hard and fast as you might think it is. And it's not as though, you know, when Jesus said that to Peter, that was, you know, that um, on this rock, I will build my church. It's not as though it was immediately apparent to every single person and it's never been contested. In fact, even within Catholicism, it was contested for quite a while. So anyways, I just appreciate you bring that up and I appreciate a different perspective on the filioque uh, discussion. Yeah. So the other, the other sort of addition I was going to make, and I'm trying to, land too long in this but going forward then i definitely agree with your idea that western christianity um developed a much more sort of 
um, structured and legalistic approach to what it means to be a, a Christian, um, to think the whole sort of paradigm for understanding what salvation was became a legal paradigm. Um, and that has not been true in, in Eastern Christianity. And then as the years progressed, so in many ways, the controversies that, that, that resulted in, in the Reformation, we see as um, a Western controversy. A lot of those issues had not been developed in the Eastern Church. Um, and, and so much of what the Reformation was born out of was, was a, a protest against Rome. And, and we understand that in some ways, because I think a lot of the issues that, that, that led to the Reformation were issues that, that um, were a result of the same struggle that um, the Eastern Church had had with the Western Church as well. Um, in some way, though, I, I guess we we would say that a lot of Protestant thinking is is over and opposed to uh, Western Catholic teaching, um, so that they're the sort of two sides of the same coin. That you guys tend to see faith in the same way, and it's very different from from the way that we see it. I mean, you already mentioned that, but um, yeah. I, I think it, it's very important, you know, from my perspective at least, to say that Orthodox. Orthodoxy is Catholic, but it is it is it does not have a lot of the same paradigms as Roman Catholicism. What do you mean by Catholic when you said Orthodoxy is Catholic? Um, yeah, good question. So I think um, you know there's some controversy about what that means, um, but the Church we we see is a unified whole, um, and and. Before the spl the split in 10, 1054, um, we were one with the Roman Catholic Church. There was one church. Um, um, I understand the word Catholic is a lot bigger than that um, in reading some of the some theologians and church fathers, so I'm probably not using it correct. But but we see the church as being a unified whole, and we see that um, not just being a spiritual reality. So I think that's the way a lot of Western Christians today, especially um, non-Roman Catholic Christians understand the word Catholic. They think of it only to mean universal, a spiritual church. Um, but we see the church as being um, just like the human person has a, a physical body and a spiritual um, reality. So the church has, um, it has a physical body. It has people uh, that form it, uh, but it also uh, is a spiritual reality. Um, it's a unification of, of um, the physical and the spiritual. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to get into some of the some of the issues that what you mentioned, like when you feel like something's not working, and then you discover orthodoxy. It's like, well, that's they're already on the right page with me. Um, something that I I would I would love to ask you right off the top, so that we for sure have time for this, is because um, we've talked about this a little bit already. In the West, we have such an idea of sin in a heavy sense. And that does come from Augustine, mm -hmm. and it comes from his book, Confessions, where he lays it out that we are born in sin, and even little babies, they're little wicked sinners, and <laughs> they'll steal a bottle from their, from their brother or sister. And, uh, you know, if, if that little baby had the strength, he would kill you when he has a temper tantrum. Uh, so basically, little babies... You know, they're born in sin, they're wicked, they deserve to go to hell. Um, and, you know, it doesn't, it just goes downhill from there. 
Uh, and I'm not exaggerating at all. That's, that is how he sees it, that we're all completely sinful. And then there's a very legal exchange of Jesus died for our sins so that before a holy God, because, you know, God is not on board with our sins at all. He, you know, God cannot look upon sins. And it says somewhere in the Old Testament and, you know, our sins are, are good, even our good works are like a filthy rag, you know, and um, all of us like sheep have gone astray, but God has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. This says in Isaiah. So because Jesus died for us, he can wipe away all this terrible sin and then we can get saved. And what that means is this legal transaction that, you know, the punishment that should have fallen on us falls on Jesus. Now we're good. Uh, all that terrible fear of judgment is past. Now we're good with God. Um, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it says in Romans 5. And Protestants really like Romans. I don't know if Orthodox love Romans, but we, we, we love Romans so much. Um, so, uh, but, so that's all, that's all fine and well, and it, it sells well, it promotes well, it evangelizes well, but it gets really, really, really heavy after a while because that sense of you're a sinner, you're such a sinner, it just gets so heavy. And this, this angry God that is so mad at our sins and so mad at the sins of the world just gets heavy. Uh, and like, certainly I understand, like if God is good and God is holy, he's not going to be happy with what's going on in the world, but you'd think he'd see some things that he would like. Right. But you kind of get this idea that like, no, like he hates all of it. He hates all of us. And uh, it can really lead to like kind of internalizing that, that fear of judgment and also that hatred of self. And anyway, so that all traces back to Augustine and also this legal idea, this legal way of seeing it, that you are a sinner, but then we'll go to court. And, you know, so you hear that so often that image of going to court and Jesus is our, our uh, lawyer that presents before God, but he's also, you know, the one that pays the price. And so, that, like that's kind of the thing that I'm really wrestling with right now, because that is kind of the center of what I have been told the gospel is what I've told other people. The gospel is gospel, meaning the central message of Christianity. How would the Orthodox church see that differently? And could you maybe help me out with some of this heaviness and fear? Yeah, th this could take the rest of the time, I think. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So in terms of, um, I mean, I, I think we both, well, we both read the same scripture and, and in, in Genesis, the, the Bible talks about um, how God created us in his likeness and image. And, and the idea there is that, um, as I understand it, the, the idea of likeness is that, that we're like a seed containing all the potential to be the fullness huh. of a tree, for instance. And then the image is, is actually, um, the, the the sort of what we are to grow into so we, we have the seed this potential to be in the image of god and and that god created adam like this and adam had this responsibility to to become uh, like god um in in creation um god um god creates adam he gives him this potential this opportunity but he, we don't see that the garden of eden as being a state of completed perfection we see it as being a state of potential perfection, a potential, um, you know, growing into the likeness of God. Um, and then what, 
what was lost in the fall, uh, you know, is that we, we lose that, um, we don't lose the image of God. We still are in the likeness of God. And, and that um, would be something the Orthodox Church sort of differs with. Um, the whole idea of original guilt, that you're born uh, with the guilt of Adam upon your shoulders and you're going to hell uh, as a newborn baby is, is foreign to us. Um, we do agree that we are born in uh, the condition of sin, that we have the sort of uh, the, um, we have the sinful nature in us, uh, the propensity to sin, to be separated from God by our actions, but not just our actions. Um, I think it's really important to, to um, point out that we have, a, a, I would say, a broader idea of sin, although I, I've heard other people talk about this too. It's not, it's not that no one else gets this, but for us, sin is a lot more of a condition of the world. It's sort of like an infection. I mean, you can think about it in the pandemic, you know, you go out and you breathe in the wrong air and you're going to get sick. Well, this is sin. It's, it's in the air we breathe. It's everywhere around us and it's always affecting us. Even if we're not committing sin, we're being, our lives are being constantly um, deteriorated by, by sin. Um, so um, I think that's, that's a sort of uh, a first very important thing to, to point out. Um, sin is, is far less a thought about an act we commit against God, although I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. Uh, that certainly is a reality. We sin against God in our action, but it also is the very condition we're born into, and it's, it's what's sort of keeping us from health from the very first breaths we take. Um, does that, does that, um, yeah. And I mean, this came up in a previous interview too, that just the thing that you put forward as first and most important affects the story. You might have things in a list, one, two, three, four, but what you put at the top yeah. of the list as most important, that actually changes the nature of the list. And I don't think that Westerners yeah. would, would deny that sin makes us sick but they would put that way down. And the first thing is this legally you have sinned against God against a holy God. And now like you owe a debt that you could never pay. But that's an interesting way to reform it because if you're sick, you can get better. Uh, and there is a restorative hope there. Um, and the, yeah. And certainly a sickness can get worse. It can be communicated. Um, and it wars against the, the image, the potential that we were made, we were made in God's image. Uh, it also kind of explains how, how some people, I mean, some people genuinely are good people or better people and worse people. And that's something that in the West, you know, supposedly everybody's a terrible sinner, except for mm -hmm. Christians who are perfect. And it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Like uh, with anecdotal real life experience. It, that's not how life looks. It looks like some yeah. people are trying well, doing well. Some yes. people are trying to resist God and they're evil people. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's not true that only the Christians are the good people. So huh. the sickness and health um, kind of seems like it would fit a little bit better with lived experience. So um, 
I'm going to kind of, well, I'll, I'll talk about salvation. Maybe that's, that's one sort of area where there's, there's differences in the way we communicate the message. And like you say, you create lists, right? And it's, you, you sort of emphasize one thing or the other. And I don't think this will, like, interestingly, this, this sort of metaphor that really worked for me that helped me understand Orthodox understanding of salvation wouldn't have been foreign to, to me completely. I think that, you know, it was something that I understood in part from my parents, you know, my, my wife's parents from our upbringing. But I think a lot of Christianity, a lot of Western Christianity has gotten so caught up in this, this, this desire to figure out who saved, how you get saved, how you know you're saved, um, that this kind of gets lost. So the metaphor that, that really helped me out was this idea of um, certainly, well, of our entire experience of, of humanity being sort of on this vast plain and in the middle of the plains a mountain and at the top of the mountain is God. And in my previous understanding, uh, being saved was all about being on the mountain. So you, 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 you know, give your life to Christ and you're on the mountain and you might be down on the mountain or up near the top, you know, depending on, on your sort of sanctification, I guess. Um, but if you're not on the mountain, you're not saved. And I, I hope I'm, I'm not, you know, being untrue to orthodoxy here. This was sort of in a catechetical course by an orthodox priest. Um, he he said that the orthodox understanding of, of this is much more that salvation is your orientation towards God. So you might be a thousand miles away on the plane, but if you're oriented towards God, if your life is facing him and you're moving in that direction with whatever strength you have, it might be a very little bit of strength, that's that's you know that's salvation um conversely you can be on the top of the mountain you can be in the church you can be near to god but if you're orientated away from him you're not you're not walking in salvation you're 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 not um appropriating what christ has done for you um and so you know you can imagine here um that say you're raised in a home with a, a father who drinks uh, you um, beats your mother and you've never seen the Bible, you've never been inside a church, how is it possible to, um, to think about that person as being, um, as, as being able to experience salvation? Well, in that framework, you can imagine that that person's orientation towards God might look a lot different from me who's been raised in the church. I have the tools to be a Christian. I've been given, you know, um, I've been taught how to pray, how to live as a Christian. Um, and of course my life should look different, but that doesn't mean that that person's beyond salvation. Um, it doesn't mean that somehow because of a luck of the draw, I got to be a Christian and, and, and that person will never experience salvation. Now that becomes problematic. And I'm not here saying that the Orthodox church is universalistic, although um, that's another discussion we can have. Um, but I am here saying that, Salvation is something that we view as belonging to God uh, to judge. Um, it's not up to us to decide who's in or out of the kingdom. Um, and that the way that God judges isn't, isn't um, you know, it's not with these outward measures that we often are, are quick to put on people. Um, and he is good. Um, you know, I, I do believe that, that God is good and that someone who, who has grown up in a situation that's awful um, still has a potential um, that that um, 
they can they can uh, respond to God, and it will look different than me. Um, but there can be something good and redemptive there. So the the evangelical is going to say that that's a works based salvation. Yeah. Do you care? <laughs> um, well, yeah. I mean. All right, so I'm going to bring another metaphor in here that helps me. Um, you know, if I if I if I have a seed and I go out and plant it in the garden, um, I can do nothing to make that seed grow. I can do nothing to to bring life to that seed that was once you know dead. I can't control how the plant looks. Um, so, in the way that, and again, I hope I'm not doing a disservice to the orthodox sort of soteriology here, but um, you know, salvation is, is God uh, making the seed grow. Salvation, that, that's, all, that's all not my doing, right? Um, but we have a responsibility to take what's been gifted to us, to care for it, to tend it, to help it, to give it the best um, sort of um, um, possibility of, of life and health, right? And so when I tend a garden, I don't for one minute think that I'm the person who made the seed grow. I can't do it. Um, but I can, I can uh, co-work with God, co-labor with God in his garden. Uh, and I do that in my own life. I do that through, through um, you know, efforts like orthodoxy talks about three pillars. So prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. These are the things that we do to, to help ourselves grow spiritually. And it's not in order to buy our salvation. It's not in order to somehow appease God, but it's because we want to labor with God. We see him, he, he, he is, he's, this world is a garden, right? He's out there and, and there's, there's seeds that are, are going to grow, but they need to be given the right circumstances. And it's our responsibility to go out there to water, to, to cut down the weeds, to, um, and so, um, we, there is this idea that salvation, the salvation journey, it is given by God, but we are cooperators or we uh, work in synergy with God. And uh, people do have a hard time with that. But quite honestly, it's very consistent with what I see in Scripture. There's no way that I think you can read the New Testament and somehow figure that um, that what we do doesn't matter or that we don't participate somehow in what God is doing. I think that theme is there and it's very consistent to me. I don't know, you know, how that, how you think that would strike the mind of the average evangelical, but. Well, I like, I like it. Um, I think the average evangelical would see people out there working, um, caring for the poor, caring for the planet, caring for social justice and say, there's a bunch of people that believe in the social gospel and they're an enemy to salvation. And then they would go out there with their Bibles and hit people on the head and make sure that they believe the right things. Because if you don't believe the right things, you're going to hell. And uh, it makes me sad. Like it just, it hurts me. Um, like I, there's a lot of things I believe. I, ideas are important, but um, yeah. I think, I don't think that that is the most important thing. And like, it sounds to me like, um, well, let, let me ask you this. What then is your orientation towards an unbeliever or uh, even somebody who has left the church, um, you know, has, has abandoned the faith or whatever? 
what is your orientation towards the outsider? Well, um, so again, I, I think in terms of like thinking about whether they're saved or not saved in the, in the grand scheme of things, are they going to heaven or not going to heaven? It, it just isn't, it's not something that I should worry myself with because it, there's no benefit in the, there's, it's not frankly my business. Um, I certainly do agree and affirm that people can be outside the faith. And I think as Christians, we have a responsibility to call people to the faith, um, you know, to, to call people to um, the church uh, where the life of faith is lived out. And that's the only place we understand you know, if, if someone were to come up to me as a non-believer and say, what do I do? I, I wouldn't say to them, oh, don't worry about it, just just do good. I would say, look, the, the scripture is clear and the teaching of the church is clear. You repent, uh, you be baptized, and in baptism, you enter into Christ's death and you're raised to him a new life and you live that new life in the community of the church. You you grow uh, by participating in in um, you know, the services of the church in taking communion, because for us, communion is, is life-giving. Um, not salvific in some sort of, again, judicial way, but this is where our salvation is, is wrapped up in, in all of this, right? And in, in living with other believers, in participating in the life of Christ in communion. Um, and that's what I would say to someone who, who wanted to become a Christian. Um, that said, um, again, who is ultimately saved um that that's up to up to christ to judge and and so you know i mean we have the story in scripture about the thief and the cross um for us we would view that not as being a normative story of how to be saved like go live a life of of hedonism and then and then at the last minute say you know remember me in your kingdom no but but this is this is jesus exercising the prerogative of, of god to 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 have mercy on who he will have mercy on. And that is, is the God that we serve and love for sure. Um, but it's not the way that I would tell someone they should live their life. Um, so I, I guess the other, you know, one way this came up is that you and I had talked about um, because of your situation and, and my own situation that I have a daughter who's struggling right now with her faith that she really has, um, you know, just said that she can't, she can't really deal with it. She can't, um, think about what it means, its implications for her life. She can't participate in, in the life of the church. And um, that, you know, at one point that would have been a really, really difficult thing for me because I would have seen it through the lens of, well, then you're, you're not a Christian and you're going to hell. Um, and and I'm, I'm not here saying that every evangelical would say that because I, I know that's not the case. I know there, there are some, some very generous um, evangelical Christians but that was the way I was I was brought to understand what it means to be a Christian um, and quite honestly I'm still concerned for her um, but I pray for her and I, I believe that God is is just and merciful and and that the God who you know he talks about how he's a father and and if I as a father can understand when my child is going through um, a place of doubt asking questions um you know we've all been there at some level in our lives and and if i can have mercy for that i i'm sure he can too and and at what point does she sort of cross the line i don't know i i, I frankly don't care to think about it um 
but I, I, I do pray and, and um, I trust that God is at work in her life. And at some level, I also respect it. I, I think like looking back in my own childhood and, and some of the examples that you and I maybe have both seen, it's easy to be a hypocrite in the church. It's easy to, 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 to go through the motions and pretend you believe or, or act like you believe because there's some other gain in it for you, right? There's, some, there's something that you're getting out of the whole thing and I, I'm really, um, uh, I never want to say it's a good thing for someone to sort of express doubt, but that doubt is a part of our natural relationship with God. I think it's, 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 you know, it's the human experience. Um, and, and I do think for someone to be able to express that, honestly, there's, there's a real beauty in that. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to, tear down what you know we have these ideas of god that are false really and we have to tear those down so that we can sort of um come to see god as he really is um and sometimes that process is 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 ugly or or scary um and sometimes people do really walk away from the faith i believe that um and and i i hope that's not the case uh you know in in my own life and in my daughter's life um but only God, I guess, can answer that, I guess. Mm-hmm. I appreciate I appreciate that answer. And for those of you that aren't tracking with my podcast, my wife, uh, well, I mentioned at the beginning, describes herself as an agnostic. She says she's not a Christian, though. Um, and my reaction to that was, well, I don't think you're going to hell because... Um, because I've seen more health in her, more of a generous spirit, more of compassion and love and more fruits of the spirit, honestly, as she works on, on healing past traumas, I see more love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, and self-control coming out of her. Um, but I had to shift. I did have to shift my evangelical views because my evangelical views were kind of black and white. And if you don't, if you don't say that you believe these things and I'm not sure you're going to the good place. And um, that for me was part of the beginning of, well, it's, it's been a long journey, but that was one of the things that was like, I, it doesn't make any sense that some of the people that harmed her spiritually say the right things, go to church, they get in, but somebody that's reeling from that, and I mean, there are people that have been sexually abused by pastors and go into uh, post-traumatic stress anytime they come near a church or hear a, so- uh, a song or, or can't even say the name Jesus because of how it was used. And can I, can I sit here in judgment and say, well, because you have said you're not a Christian, you're not going to heaven. I, I just absolutely can't, can't fathom that. Um, but it it is part of typical evangelical beliefs. Um, so I wanted to give you a chance to uh, like, what sort of resources, where can we sign up for this? If, if myself or uh, I know you had already sent me an email and I will go back and read that. Um, but for listeners, what are some ways that they can, obviously if there's a Orthodox church nearby, they can, um, you know, I, actually, I want to ask you something first. Um, just because, yeah, like what, what are some of the pitfalls that you might warn about? Now, 
just as I say that, because I'm familiar with Mennonites and I could tell you some of the pitfalls. It's great. You find an evangelical Mennonite church. They're typically great people. But I would warn you about a few things. And I, I love Pentecostals. And depending on who you are, I might say, find a Pentecostal church. I think that's perfect for you. But there are a few pitfalls. Uh, you know, for most of the denominations, I would say things like that. Reformed churches, find an Orthodox Presbyterian church. That's great for some things. But there's a few pitfalls. Um, are, there th- are there pitfalls of Orthodoxy that you, and this is not... This is not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but just something as a brand new person walking in starry eyed saying evangelicalism was terrible. Orthodoxy is going to be heaven. Are there some reality checks that you might want to just lay down and say, well, you know, there, there's people over here too. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, for sure. I mean, obviously the Orthodox understanding of, of, of who and what it is, is, is different. Right. Um, and so within that framework, um, you know, as an Orthodox Christian, I have to attest that I believe that the Orthodox Church is, is the fullness of the church. Now, that's not to say that it's not full of human beings. Uh, and there is there are places that can really, um, there are issues that can really become quite problematic. So, um, you know, unfortunately, because of the way Orthodoxy has um, um Growing up in North America, there's a lot of sort of uh, nationalism. There's a lot of, um, there are quite a number of churches that are are maybe um, to some degree more interested in maintaining their ethnic expression uh, than they are in, in the gospel. Um, I, I think, um, you know, that hasn't been my experience at all. Um, but I think there are places where you might step into a church and find that because you're not, you know, Ukrainian or Greek or Russian, that you feel out of place. Um, and I would say, if that's your experience, um, push through. There's there's beauty there. Um, but sometimes individuals get very caught up, very tied up in 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 who they are as a as a as a Greek or as as a Ukrainian, um, more so than they're concerned about. Um, you know, welcoming other people into their church environment. Um, and that can be challenging. Um, but that, um, yeah, that's one. And the second issue I would say that one needs to watch out for is that um, there's a real temptation, especially in this day and age, to to engage in orthodoxy um, in the mind, where it becomes... Um, it becomes no different than anything else. It's just a set of propositions that you that you uh, accept. Um, but that's not the Orthodox faith. The Orthodox faith is lived. Um, it, it's in the community of the believers, and and you have to, you you have to um, you have to get into the stream. You have to uh, immerse yourself in it. Um, pray the prayers. Uh, discipline your life that way. Um, go to church uh, when you're able. I understand that's that's difficult for some people in some circumstances, but you, you embrace the life of the church, and it changes you slowly. Um, but to think that you you um, you become orthodox because you you start to have some sort of battle on and you you <laughs> um, you know are able to sort of um, you're able to put into words something uh, that you understand about the Orthodox faith is, is not really the case. You really have to, um, you really have to live it. 
Hmm. I would say those are the two big things that come to mind in that question. Appreciate that. Um, we're, this is going longer than in anticipated. Are you good for time? Yeah, I'm okay. Okay. Um, I ha I have an idea. I'm not sure if it'll work. I'm, I have a list of five things here, like objections. And I'm one, okay. and these are like straw man objections. I'm wondering if you can do like a really quick. Okay. One line, one or two or three line answer to these, because these are kind of the typical, would you be up for that? Sure. Sure. And if it doesn't work, we'll cut it out. Um, <laughs> if you don't, if you're not able to listen to this, you know, I did really badly or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, icons or idols? Uh -huh. um, no, I, I, so icons are, are a communication of the faith, just like um, scripture. Um, scripture, we don't consider that even though we love it, even though we, we revere it, we, we uh, sorry, we, we consider it to be very special. It's not an idol, it's a window to, to Christ. Uh, icons as well are, are a window to Christ through people, uh, through paintings. Um, they show us who God is and how God can redeem human beings. Um, you guys have priests, but there is only one intermediary between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Absolutely. Uh, and we affirm that completely. Um, priests are, are necessary just as pastors are, are often necessary to, to, um, to give us structure, to help us understand, to, um, you know, the church, to teach us. And that's how we see the role of priests as well. Do, do you, I'm breaking from my format here, but do you guys have a, like a theology of priesthood like the Catholic Church does? Where, because for Catholics, it's very much like there are, there's a priesthood that has a certain, like, you can't get married and uh, once a priest, always a priest. And like, and, and they have certain authorities that, the laity doesn't have do, do you guys have that or is that um different? yeah it, it's it's Probably expressed a bit differently and i'm not really familiar with a lot of their specific teachings about the priesthood um certainly orthodox priests can be married um orthodox bishops are not married it's not because we think that marriage would ruin them it's because um it's just a, a functionality of how the church has sort of um seen the bishop best able to fill his role um so um but we do believe, uh, as Scripture says, I mean, th there's scriptural precedent for church leadership, right? In 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 the the um, in the uh, pastoral books written by Paul, he talks about you know priests, deacons, uh, and uh, and bishops, um, and this was you know well established in the early life of the church. If you read in the first you know the first century after Christ, it was it was um, it was a part of church life, and so. Um, we don't think we're sort of veering off from what the scripture teaches in that. Does it have to be a lifelong calling? Um, good question. I, so people retire. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that, is that different from what you mean or? I, I don't know. I, I just, for Catholics, I, I think they take a vow and then that's what they do. And, and if you leave the priesthood, you have to like get special permissions and stuff like that. Um, um, so that, that's probably mostly true. I mean, it is considered it, uh, your, your calling and something that you, if you become a priest, that's what you do. 
uh, not that you can't, some priests hold secular jobs, um, but, but that, that is more than just something you, you um, do out of interest and then you might quit two years later. Uh, most people who are priests would, would remain in the priesthood um, for their lifetime, although they might retire from their parish. Okay. Um, I'm sure you hear people say that Mary, praying to Mary is idolatry or another intermediary. Yeah, so, um, you know, if I were going through a difficult situation, I might ask you to pray for me. Um, and, and why would I ask you to pray for me when I can ask, I can go directly to Christ? Um, you know, I'm not sure we understand the full mystery of that. Um, but we do, we pray for each other and we believe that there's power there. Um, and then the New Testament talks very specifically in a number of places about how um, you know, James mentions how the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The idea is there that that some people's prayers um, have have a different power than other people's prayers. Um, and, and Peter, also in 1 Peter 3, he talks about, you know, how if you're married and you um, you mistreat your wife, you actually hinder your prayers. So so there is this idea that, that um, there are certain people whose prayers are, do have a level of effectiveness and that's not to say that anyone cannot pray certainly anyone can pray um, but there are people whose prayers are effective because they they have lived a life in communion with with god um, and so when we ask the saints to pray with us it's because we believe that they are alive and in the presence of god that they have lived a life that that exemplifies that they have that relationship with god and we ask them to pray for us, just like I might ask you to pray for me. Um, it's not because I can't go to Christ. I can go to Christ, and I do go to Christ. Um, but I, I believe that there is power when we pray together and when we pray with those who have gone before us. Um, and so that would be the short answer. And Mary, I guess we would say, is the is is um, she is in some ways the quintessential human being. She's the one who gives her yes to God. Who who who. Uh, we see as being the, the first fruits um, of, of the kingdom of the new life and, and um, the mother of God, the one who, who um, uh, has a relationship with Christ that would be um, that much more beautiful because of who she is. That's really remarkable that you would think of Mary as the quintessential human, a woman, female figure. It, this Advent, I mean, I'm thinking about a lot of things and, and very aware of how male and masculine evangelicalism is. Um, and there was a meme that was passed around about Mary. Did you know the famous song um, that you're familiar with mm -hmm. and how that's basically mansplaining? And I had never thought of it before, but it is, I mean, it's not explicit, but it was Mark Lowry and, um, forget the other guy's name that wrote it uh, men and, and and asking mary did you know um yeah. and the whole song is explaining it to her and uh -huh. when i posted i posted that just kind of for fun but then i i said you know the abba maria or the the uh the magnificat is the only song in scripture written in the new testament written by a woman it's perhaps the only portion of the new testament written by a woman and this is a major part of Catholic doctrine. I don't know about Orthodox doctrine, but 
this is a song, Hail Mary, Mother of Light, etc. This is a prayer that is prayed often, Mary's words uh, paraphrased into a prayer. Um, this is a, a, an important integral part of Catholic theology, and Mary being at the center of the church is an, is an imp important way of embracing women, embracing motherhood, Mm -hmm. uh, embracing all the eight, like the stages of motherhood. There's the, you know, the virgin before, and and there's the birth, and then there's the the mother releasing her child. Like there's the stages of motherhood that are all honored by Catholic doctrine, uh, embracing Mary. That we as Protestants, because we're protesting that, we're just like, no, we we can't have anything to do with Mary. And it, like likely there are extremes and abuses in, in ways that. Mariology can get weird, um, but just this Advent season with my journey, I'm just like, wow! Like, we just took the woman out of the story and replaced it with well, nothing basically, but also, but then kind of this this male way of of telling it. And if there wasn't a song like Mary, did you know there'd be a pastor talking about it, um, usually from a very male perspective. Anyways, I don't know if there was a pickup from that, but just it's interesting to think of Mary being the quintessential human um, because I think definitions really matter uh, and it matters who you put first. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that um, we, we see Mary as, as sort of, I guess, maybe um, exemplifying the, the potential that we have as human beings to, to, you know, be involved in the story of God. She, um, she does that with grace and, and, and yeah, scripture says some very, um, you know, all generations will call you blessed. Um, that was something that was entirely missing from my background, for sure. We didn't call her blessed. We thought she was just sort of an innocent bystander. But, but um, we're taught to respect her as someone who is blessed. And, and that's, we do, there are some differences between uh, Orthodox and Catholic Mariology, for sure. We, we do feel that they have gone too far um, in some in some of their teachings about Mary. Um, so there are specific differences and they're not really important to talk about here, but um, that somehow she represents who we all can be in Christ. Hmm. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to let us know what are some podcasts we can, we can find about orthodoxy and what are some ways that we can kind of plug ourselves in. Sure. Um, so I think just in terms of learning more about Orthodox teachings and theology, I would recommend um, I would recommend two podcasts. One is is a um, a priest who uh, was in Pennsylvania. Um, uh, he he died about five years ago now, but he was just a beautiful man, and his teachings are celebrated throughout most of. Uh, most of, of orthodoxy these days, they're just, he really has a good way of bringing things home. Um, his name is Father Thomas Hopko, H-O-P-K-O, and um, his podcast was called uh, Speaking the Truth in Love. Um, that, that whole series, there's, there's, you know, lots and lots and lots of podcasts on that series, um, but you can sort of scroll through and find um, anything you'd like. Um, then the other um, series I would recommend is a podcast series called Our Life in Christ. Um, and this was done by um, a couple of converts to orthodoxy. It's, it's an older series now. I think it ran from about 2006 to, I don't know, 2010 or something like that. 
and they specifically answer or deal with a lot of um, the the sort of questions or concerns or um, issues that that Protestant Christians have when considering Orthodox Christianity. So um, if you can find that one, um, it's it's an excellent resource as well. Um, finally, I'd say you know there is no replacement for, and I, as I said before, I would caution against the idea that that you you know orthodoxy is not an armchair faith um, or even a book faith um, so by all means one should try and, and interact with the faith and you know if you go if you have opportunity to go to, to an orthodox church it's going to be quite strange if you've never been to a liturgical church before so give yourself some time it will probably take um, you know <laughs> several weeks before you even know what's going on and feel comfortable but um, I think that's that is the best way. I recognize that um, you know in Red Lake uh, or or in many places yet uh, in in Canada especially it's it's hard to do. Um, these days you one can sort of interact by uh, you know our church has Zoom services right now and it it might be uh, a good way if someone's interested to uh, to sort of experience a little bit of what our services are like and and the things we say and the things we pray and the things we sing. Um, so. That's always an opportunity, but at the end of the day, I think if someone's really interested, um, you need to experience it. Um, and if you're somewhere far away or you're interested and you want to talk about where to sort of get your feet wet, because of the ethnic issues in North America, it can be challenging and I'd be happy to talk to anyone. So um, you could always, um, I, I, could, I would be happy to email anyone who's interested and we could discuss it further as well. Okay. Yeah, and I'll provide um, uh, Thomas Hopko speaking the truth in love and our life in Christ uh, in the show notes. You had sent me a prayer guide of some sort. What was that that you had sent me? Do you remember? No, I honestly don't remember offhand. No, sorry. Okay. Uh, well, we'll find it and put it in the show notes if it is something that's that's shareable. Sure. Yeah. Well, I I really is there something else that you wanted to add? you've been dying to say it this whole time no no not really uh, thanks for the chance to speak i uh i again well i guess if anything i just i'm a little hesitant i um orthodoxy is not a neatly packaged faith right um if you go out and look for the official teaching on anything orthodox um there's not much there's not much that we actually hold as official teaching um and there's a lot of um there's a lot of room for different ideas for sure um, but I hope I don't misrepresent the, the faith in any way. Well, it, from what we've said so far, that doesn't surprise me too much. It sounds like we in the West are all about our boxes and then fighting about our boxes and about killing each other for our boxes. And I think we appreciate <laughs> that. There's a term that I meant to bring up at some point. Maybe I'll bring it up to conclude. Apophatic versus cataphatic. Yeah. Nodding like you know what that means. Yeah, apophatic. Absolutely. What does that mean? Well, um, we're a lot more comfortable with with saying what we don't know about God than what we do know about God. Yeah, that's okay. So that's the cataphatic, right? So um, we we um, sorry say I would say if we make oh, a statement um, a statement yeah with with uncertainty or about what we don't know that would be apophatic, whereas a cataphatic statement would be a statement of God is this, um, and orthodoxy is a lot more comfortable with with um with uh saying what we don't know or 
being open to the idea that there's a lot we don't know. So we make statements about God that are, are sometimes more um, negative. Um, for instance, we get into trouble if we say God, um, God is angry. Um, does God experience anger? Well, um, I think we have to be really careful with that because we humanize those emotions and we can only think about them from a human perspective. And God uh, can be angry, but um, that's, you know, I, to make a strong statement about that is, is really, we're on shaky ground. Or, or even to say God is a being. Well, he is a being, but he's not a being like you and I are beings. So it's easier to talk about what we don't know than what we do know. Is yeah. that yeah. what you're thinking? Yeah, that's, that's a really helpful thing. A teacher showed me that on a board one time. He drew a box and then a question mark in the box. And he said, cataphatic thinking like us in the West, we want to figure out what's in the box. And then he drew some X's outside. And then he said, once we know what's in the box, we know what's not in the box. Mm -hmm. So we're going to say, God is this. The Trinity is this. God, salvation is this. Uh, the atonement is this. These are all the things in the box. If you don't fit in the box, then you're a heretic. So th those are all the X's. Whereas apophatic thinking is the opposite. So there's a box with a question mark in it. Maybe I should have done the question marks and X's backwards. Uh, but there's a box with a question mark in it. And you don't presume to know what's in the box. You don't presume to know the, the mind of God. You don't presume to know the nature of God. But you mm -hmm. do know some of the things that God is not. God is not mm -hmm. finite. God is not evil. God is not mean. God is yeah. not so you put X's around it and you kind of are like, God is somewhere in there in that area. And I can know about things. I can know things about him in a negative sense. This is the via negativa um, way of knowing about God or apophatic knowledge that we can know about God an indirect way of knowing things that could not apply to him. Uh, so it's very unsatisfactory for us in the West that are just like, Hey, just, just give me the five point sermon and let me go home in 25 minutes, please. Because it, sure. it's a it's a humble way of well I don't we don't know but there are it's not it's not it's not like we know nothing yes in, in the apophatic way it's just that you, you have far less certainty and there's a, there's a, a whole lot more room for uh, not ambiguity but for um, I want to say wonder or for mystery or for I, I guess maybe it lets God have a little bit of room to breathe. Can, can I say that without being irreverent? Um, I think we in the West kind of just, you know, he's in the box. Yeah. And, and the problem with that, with the box idea of knowing about God is that if we really conceive of God as something that can be fathomed or understood by us, then it's not God, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's something smaller than my own mind. Um, and yeah, that yeah, that box analogy is a good way to think about it. Yeah. Well, this has been a really great talk and I appreciate it. And I, it's really been good. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Josiah. All right. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye.